You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. In a world where they say anything is possible, you have to leave no stone unturned if you intend to make the unthinkable, the unlikely, or the impossible, possible. Sports scientists proclaimed with all of their knowledge and might that humans would never be able to run a four-minute mile. Then, along came Roger Bannister, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Now, there are high school athletes breaking the four-minute mark. How about a sub-two-hour marathon? Not possible. In step, Elude Kipchoge at the 2019 Vienna Marathon. One hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. Ridiculously fast. It's a 26.2 mile race, 42.1 kilometers. He averaged four minutes, 37 seconds per mile or two minutes, 52 seconds per kilometer. That is insane. Or... How about playing 2,632 consecutive baseball games? Impossible? Well, every sports writer thought so. But how about you ask Cal Ripken, who set the new record in 1995? Or how about Serena Williams? Whoever thought she would be possible? But she's very, very possible. Tom Brady also. Very possible. How about Michael Phelps? 28 career Olympic gold medals, 23 of those being gold. That just doesn't seem possible until you look at his medal haul. Very possible. Or maybe one of the most unrecognized, most dominating athletes in the history of any sport. Canadian freestyle skier Mikhail Kingsbury. Over 100 World Cup podiums, 24 Crystal Globes as the best skier in the world, and a record Four world titles. We could keep going. There are many impossibles that have been made possible. A man on the moon? Maybe Mars? Enough said. But it takes something special to move the marker into uncharted waters where no person has gone before. And one of those special things is looking at things differently and looking everywhere you possibly can for inspiration, guidance, and answers. Today, on the final episode of our three-part Looking Back to Learn series, we look to a very unlikely source for that inspiration, guidance, and answers. Would you ever think that a former mob boss could help us excel in the world of sport? Well, I'll leave you to answer that question because today I take you back to my incredible conversation with Michael Franzese, former mafia boss of New York's feared Colombo crime family. At his peak, he was earning upwards of $8 million a week on illegal and legitimate business dealings. He's ranked as one of the most powerful and wealthy mob bosses in history and the biggest money earner since Al Capone. I met Michael one spring training as he toured around talking to each Major League Baseball organization, discussing corruption in sport and how the mob and other underworld organizations deliberately target players, referees and umpires, game officials and staff. And frankly, for a farm boy from a little town in central Alberta, it was scary as hell to hear how it actually all goes down. This is an incredible conversation about crime, sport corruption, and the unbelievable system the mafia uses to generate loyalty, fear, and money. Lots and lots of money. 
Sometimes we need to learn what not to do in order to nail down what we should be doing. Kind of like Thomas Edison, who after failing so many times to create a working and reliable light bulb, finally made the seemingly impossible possible. He illuminated the world and later became famous for saying, I've not failed 10,000 times. I've not failed once. I have succeeded in proving that those 10,000 ways will not work. Ultimately, he's saying, I simply discovered what not to do so we could figure out what we should do. Here's my conversation with Michael. Enjoy. We're now joined by Michael Franzese, former mafia boss for New York's violent and feared Colombo crime family. At his peak, he was earning five to eight million dollars per week on illegal and illegal businesses. And in Forbes' list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses, he was 18, just five behind John Gotti. And you've been named one of the biggest money earners in the mob history since Al Capone. Michael Franzese, welcome to the show. How are you, Jeff? Good to be here. Hey, very, very good. Now, uh, a number of years ago, I met you uh, when I was working with the Toronto Blue Jays and you were consulting with the FBI and going from team to team, uh, talking to the players about, you know, their situation and the tentacles of the underworld crime getting into the sports world. And I thought that was a very powerful, powerful presentation for all the players. But before we get there... Maybe let's talk about your background because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, you were named one of the biggest money earners in the mob since Al Capone. That's a great accolade if you're looking at it from a from a, a, a perspective. Um, and you're 18th on the list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses. Now, Michael, this is quite uh, the resume and accolade list here. Um, Maybe you could tell us growing up how you got into the business and how you were able to earn five to eight million dollars per week. It seems unbelievable to us. Sure, Jeff. You know, my dad was the uh, underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York uh, La Cosa Nostra families back in the 60s. And, uh, you know, he was a very uh, powerful figure in that life. He was uh, always a, a major target of law enforcement, target of the media. So I grew up, you know, pretty well in that lifestyle, even though my dad didn't want me to be part of that life. He wanted me to go to school and get an education. And I was on that road until he got in some real trouble back in the 60s. He was indicted several times um, in the state of New York, went to trial a few times and was acquitted each time in, in the state. But then in 1966, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. And in 1970, after he lost all his appeals, he was shipped off to Leavenworth Penitentiary uh, to do his time. Now, I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University when I went in. And uh, it was funny, I was kind of a jock myself. You know, I played uh, two sports, and uh, that's where my head was at at the time. But um, I loved my dad very, very much. Uh, he was a great father, and, you know, I almost idolized him as a kid. When he went away, I was devastated because he was 50 when he went in. And, you know, I figured at 50 on top of that, my dad would never come out of prison alive. So at that time, you know, I was uh, I was a freshman in, in college and um, uh, Joe Colombo was the boss of my family. He was close to my dad. He kind of took me under his wing. I started to see a lot of my dad's friends and they would fill my head. You know, Mike, you're you're going to school. Your father's going to die in prison. If you don't help him out, he's, he's never going to get out of there. And 
and that really influenced me. I went to see Dad in uh, in Leavenworth Penitentiary, and I lost interest in school. And I said, Dad, if, if I don't help you out, you're going to die in here, and uh, i got to make a change in my life. And he was upset, didn't want it for me, but we kind of argued about it in the visiting room, and I was pretty headstrong as a kid. He knew my mind was made up, and he said, Son, if you're going to be on the street, then I want you on the street the right way. And in his mind, the right way was uh, for me to become a member of his life. So he told me to go home, that uh, he was going to send word downtown. He was going to propose me into membership for the family. And uh, he did. And, um, you know, that's how it started for me. I was proposed. Uh, the boss at that time, Joe Colombo, he was shot and seriously wounded. A new boss that took over, uh, who's now dead, Tom DeBella. And Tom sat with me and he said, Mike, you know, this is uh, the message I got from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life? I said, yes. And uh, he said, well, from now on, 24-7, you're on call to serve this family. And if your mother is sick and dying and you're at her deathbed and we call you to service, you leave your mother and you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, we'll let you know. And I was 22 years old in kind of like a pledge period for the next year where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. And, you know, I'll let your imagination go with that one. But uh, all I can tell you is, you know, there's a lot of discipline in that life, a lot of authority, structure. And at times, uh, the life is very violent. And if you're part of that life, you're part of the violence. And, you know, you got to do what you got to do to prove yourself. And uh, after about a year, I was called into a room again. And uh, it was Halloween night, 1975, that Myself and five other guys took an oath and became sworn made members of the Colombo crime family. That's how it started for me. Wow, we're talking with Michael Franzese, one of the top and most powerful mafia bosses. And on a list of the 18 or the 50 most wealthy and powerful, you're just five behind John Gotti himself as a member of the Colombo crime family. Well, let's talk about this. As a pre-med student, this is uh, just a major shift. I, I can't imagine how this would happen as a pre-med student and hitting the street. You know, the imagination does run wild here, Michael. You know, we all... The closest we're ever going to get to it in our lives is watching the movies on TV, you know, and, and you've been depicted in a couple of those movies. Um, how accurate is that in terms of, you know, letting our imagination understand what you're talking about here? Well, you know, in terms of the most accurate movies that are, are out there, I mean, The Godfather, uh, Jeff, I mean, I love that movie. It was, it was probably the greatest, you know, movie that was done in that genre, but it was fictional. And uh, they were fictional characters. But you take a movie like Goodfellow, where they did mention my name, yes. or Donnie Brasco. Uh, I knew the, both of those crews really well. And uh, that's a pretty accurate portrayal of the life. They, they got it fairly right in both of those films. And they were based upon true stories, and they were pretty close to reality. So in watching those films, you get a pretty good sense of what the life was all about. Well, Michael, when you're inside of the family now, I'm just very interested about this. You know, you've been accepted into the family. Um, you're on call 24-7. Did you have freedom to reign or were you following rules? How did you get to the point where you were leading and then, you know, setting up the systems to earn 5 to $8 million per week? Well, you know, when you come into the life, I mean, obviously, you, you, you know, you got to answer to your boss. So you come in as a soldier and you're appointed, uh, you know, under a cop regime or captain. And you always have to, uh, you know, report to that person and ultimately to the boss. But you're given free reign in the fact that if you're an earner, um, they want you to go out and earn money. I mean, that's what it's all about. And, and, uh, and you bring money for yourself and for the family. Now, you know, the fallacy is that you come into that life and everybody becomes wealthy. Well, that's not the case. You know, the life is really 
separated. There's no middle class. You either are an earner or you're just a guy that, uh, you know, is part of the life and becomes useful and does the work, so to speak. And uh, in our family, the Colombo family, we had maybe 115 made guys at that time. There was really about 20 of us that were earning good money. The rest, you know, we kind of supported and they got union jobs and, and they just uh, were loyal guys that hung around. So uh, I was, uh, you know, I was encouraged to go out and, and do what I could. And I had kind of a head for business. And, you know, I was fortunate, Jeff, in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And I was very aggressive. Uh, I worked 18 hours a day. I got into a lot of different things. I mean, I had legitimately, I had two automobile dealerships that I owned. I was, uh, had interest in a couple of restaurants. I had a leasing company. And, um, you know, on the illegal side, I had a major bookmaking operation. I had 12 or 13 bookmakers working for me. <laughs> I was very heavy into, uh, you know, union and labor racketeering. I had a construction company that I used the unions to benefit me from. And my, my, uh, my biggest, uh, uh, you know, earning that I ever made was through the gasoline business. And um, I fell upon something there with somebody and, uh, you know, the amount of money I was making out of that operation. And basically we were just defrauding the government out of the, uh, the tax on every gallon of gasoline. And uh, it turned out to be a, an operation where I was grossing, you know, 60 to 70 million dollars a month. 60 to 70 million dollars a month. We're talking to form, former mafia boss, uh, Michael Franzese. Michael, that is an incredible story. Um, now... The tables turn. Um, getting out must have been an absolute scary episode in your life. I mean, it seems to me just knowing, you know, the rumors and hearing you talk before, uh, that's not just something you walk away from simply shaking the dirt off your hands and riding off into the sunset. No, you know, I mean, you know the story. I'm sure most people know that when you leave that life, uh, they say you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. And once you're in, you're in for life. You know, what you know about the life, you can't erase. It's in your mind, your heart. And there's no way to just say, hey, I'm done. And, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to, to, to really uh, summarize what happened, but I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been in the life a number of years. They did make me a captain. I was a, a cop of regime. I was appointed that in 1980 by my boss. And quite honestly, you know, they were grooming me to, to possibly take over the family. The boss had a son. He and I were very close. We came in at the same time, the same age. And our dads were grooming us to take over the family. And, and you know, but I got to, you know, I knew what the life was all about at that point. And I saw some things that were, you know, really kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word scary, but kind of disappointing because, you know, the life is supposed to be built on respect and, and, to a degree it is, but then to a large degree, there's a lot of politics and things go down that you would, would hope wouldn't go down in a life of, of allegedly uh, of honor. So, but I would have never left. I mean, I was at the top of my game. I became a major target of law enforcement. I, I beat five cases. I beat Giuliani in a big racketeering case. You know, I had my own helicopter. I had a jet plane. I had the houses in uh, three you know, major states in the country. I'm bringing eight to nine million dollars a week, my end into the operation. So I had it going on. I mean, I was at the top of my game. And, uh, you know, I had an interest in a production company. I was making movies out in L.A. A guy had got me involved and I, and I invested some money and we were making movies for a couple of years. And I, uh, I produced a movie which was a breakdance movie, a lot of music and dance back in 1985. And on the set of that movie, I met a young woman. She was a dancer in the film who I fell very much in love with is now my wife of 26 years. 
And uh, she was actually my motivation for walking away from the life. And um, how I did it, Jeff, uh, I got to tell you, there's no blueprint Mm -hmm. um, for walking away from that life. But, you know, I'm a guy that uh, took certain risks in my life. I thought I knew the life well enough to where I could make a break, move out to California. Um, I wasn't going to let anybody walk me into a room, you know, in, in one night because the unfortunate part of that life, your best friend can walk you in a room when you're in trouble you don't walk out again. And I said, well, that's not going to happen to me. And uh, I did what I could to try to de- protect myself. But when it came, became public that I was walking away, all hell broke loose for me. And boss puts a contract. My dad disowns me. The feds are all over me to, to become a witness because they said, you know, you're a dead man anyway. Words all over the street. And I had seven, eight, nine years of a real struggle. You know, I took a plea on a major case to kind of make the break. I got a 10-year sentence. I did eight on the 10. They locked me down for so much of the time because my life was in danger. And uh, I just went through a lot of struggles to get out. But, you know, I changed my lifestyle. I used whatever knowledge and experience I had. And I can tell you at this point, um, I just about outlasted everybody. Everybody I knew in that life is either dead or in prison forever. You know, you mentioned that Fortune magazine article. Yeah. It was written in 87. It was uh, 50 of us on there, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country was the title. And they had a chart with uh, the 50 of us on there. I was number 18 on the list in rank. I was five behind Gotti. They ranked me. And I was the youngest guy on the list. Well, the interesting thing is that today, 23 years later, out of that list of 50, 43 of them are dead. Three of them that I know of are doing life in prison. And by some, you know, fortunate reason, I'm here to uh, to talk to you here today and do what I do now. So, And also the five guys that uh, the night I got made, there were six of us. All five of them are dead, and not one of them died in natural causes. So to say that I've been fortunate and blessed and uh, and just happy to be where I'm being would be an understatement. Wow. Michael Franzese, former member of New York's feared Colombo crime family, joins us. Well, you've uh, taken a turn 23 years, and wouldn't you know it, it took a lady to get it done. I mean, how, how many times have we heard this story? Uh, it happens in your world just like it happens in our world, it seems. Uh, but we're glad it happened because meeting you with the Blue Jays and the, the – the presentation you gave to the players there really painted a different picture in terms of sports and how the criminal underworld has stretched its tentacles into the world of professional sports. Cause let's face it, that's a big money racket as well. Michael, maybe you could share with us uh, what you share with so many athletes out there in terms of being aware of what's going on around them. Yeah. You know, my basic message, and uh, I got to tell you, I, I, um, you know, I owe a lot to Major League Baseball and all the pro leagues because they actually solicited me in prison to participate in a video that all the players saw at that time. And it was an anti-gambling video. They did a great job on it, in my opinion. They spent about a quarter of a million bucks and talked about, you know, Pete Rose and Sleister and, and all those guys. And I did my part when I agreed to do it. And they featured me kind of prominently. When I got out of jail, they asked me to... Uh, to take the message directly to the players, and that's how I got to meet you and, and do what I do now. Um, and basically, I let them know, you know, players are targeted. Gambling uh, is a major, major business for organized crime. And during my time, when I had these bookmakers working for me, I wasn't a bookmaker myself, but every bookmaker on the street that can, you know, cover a decent bet is somehow associated with organized crime, especially in New York. I mean, you can't operate without being associated with one of us. We just wouldn't let you. And, um, you know, we had a lot of players gambling with our bookmakers, and we'd get them in trouble. You know, they'd, they'd get into debt for uh, $20,000, $30,000. I, I remember so often, Jeff, I'd get a call from the bookmaker, you know, so-and-so is gambling with us. Mike, he's in debt for twenty twenty-five dollars Should I cut him off? 
And I would say, why cut them off? You're writing down an entry on a piece of paper. Let them get in debt with you for 100 grand, 150, 200 grand, and then bring them to me, and then I'll show you how we'll make some real money. And, you know, we, we targeted a lot of these guys because, uh, as you know, you know, gambling is, is prevalent in the leagues, and especially what I'm seeing more today than ever is, uh, is on the college level. So many of these student athletes, because there's so much access to gambling today, are getting themselves in trouble. We just had another, uh, you know, article in the paper today about a student uh, athlete from Auburn, um, you know, who's uh, involved in a punch-shaving deal, at least the allegations of that. Not too long ago, a few months ago, University of San Diego. Uh, it happens all the time, and that's why I, I try to get myself out there and try to educate the players because they don't realize that there's such big money in gambling on sports, both on the street and legitimately, and, and that gamblers will take advantage of that. And these guys don't realize that they're targets, and they got to be careful how who they get involved with, um, and 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 their gambling habits themselves. Because not only can they get in trouble that way, but Jeff, I'll be honest with you, I've been around everything in my life. You spend 20 years on the street, and you see drugs, you see alcohol, you see all of this kind of stuff that just destroys people's lives. But I will tell you, I've seen more lives destroyed over gambling than I have either drugs or alcohol. And it could be a very, very addictive vice, and people really got to be careful, and, and especially our athletes. They got to watch because they're targets. There are no question. We're talking with Michael Franzese, former a mafia boss with the Colombo crime family of New York. Michael, you said something very interesting. I just want to, for our listeners' sake, maybe paint the picture, the dirty picture side here. When those guys actually were brought to you, what was your approach then? I mean, this is where things probably got really ugly. Oh yeah, well here's you know here's basically the pitch, and you know these were these were players that were known, you know, known and unknown, and uh, you know they'd bring them to me, and I'd say, hey, so and so, you know, you owe me a couple of bucks here. I didn't know if uh, if you knew, but uh, the, the guy you've been gambling with has a partner, and I'm him. And uh, how are you going to pay me? And you know, back then, as you know, guys weren't making back in the '80s. They weren't making the kind of money they were making now. If they were in debt for a hundred, hundred and fifty, that was a lot of money. And they tell me, well, you know, Mike, I don't really have it, and so on and so forth. And I say, well, you know what? You're a good guy. I like the way you play. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You don't have to pay me all at once, but I'm going to charge you 5% a week on 100 So you give me five grand a week in cash until you can get that 100000 So I'm going to give you a break. And he would go away, and, you know, he's saying to himself, he don't want to say it to me because he wants to get out of the room. Five grand a week. Oh, my gosh, how am I going to do that? And he'll pay two, three, four weeks. And then he can't do it anymore, and uh, we'll bring him back. And I'll tell him, listen, you know, you got to pay. You don't walk away from this debt. And uh, if you don't want to pay me, you know, don't worry about it. You could leave here today, and you don't have to have to come back. I'll find you when I'm ready, and, uh, and I'll take care of it my way. Or I'll give you another option. Here's the deal. You know, you're a football player. You're a basketball player. If he's a basketball player, we'll go easy because it's an easy sport. You know, um, any basketball player on the, on the court, has tremendous impact on a game. One player. Right. And I tell them, listen, listen, guys, you know, you don't have to win or lose. It's not about that. It's all about the spread. So if you're favored to win tomorrow night by 10 points, you make sure you don't cover. Win by seven, win by six, win by eight. I don't care. You do that. You did that for me three or four times. We'll be even. I'll handle my end. You just do your end. And then you don't have to worry about nothing. We shake hands and we're friends. And if you don't want to do that, leave here today. And like I said, I'll deal with it in another way. But, uh, 
you know, don't count on too much longevity in your sport. And that's it. You don't have to say too much more, Jeff. You're right. And I get the message loud and clear. Trust me, I'm sitting here and I get it. Hey, you literally owned these guys. They had no choice. You were in total control. And Michael, I got to ask you right now before we let you go. Hey, this is still happening today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, Jeff, I got to tell you, too, you know, some of the pro players that I talk with, they're not going to throw. I don't see them throwing a game. They make enough money, but the money, the losses that some of these guys have talked to me about and some of the things that they've done as a result of these losses, it's a shame. And uh, and I tell them, you know, you guys better have good, you know, a good retirement plan. You better make your money and sock some of it away because if you continue these habits when you're out of the sport, you're going to have some problems. And on a college level, these young people, you know, I make the same offer every time, Jeff. When I leave a school, I tell them, listen, you got an issue with gambling or anything else. I'm your friend. I don't have to know your name. I don't work for the NCAA. I'm not part of enforcement. I don't have to report to anybody. I'm here to help. If you have an issue, email me. Email me from a bogus email address. I don't care. I just want to help. I'm going to tell you this, Jeff. I've done over 400 universities, mostly Division One, some Division Two, mixed in there. It has never failed me yet. By the time I get back to my hotel room, I have emails from students that I spoke to that in that session that have gambling issues. Wow, Michael. An incredible story from a pre-med student to one of the most renowned mafia personalities. Now you're a man on a mission talking to corporate executives, professional and student athletes. You go and work with at-risk youth and church audiences and basically speaking to anybody to share your knowledge with them to help keep them out of trouble and put them on on the on the path an incredible story Jeff thank you and and you know just for your audience to know you know it's I tell our young people it's it's very possible to start out one way in life and end up 180 degrees to the other side and that could be good or bad based upon the choices that you make in life and I, I try to be an encouragement to let people know you know I came to where I am now fighting and screaming I wasn't I wasn't looking to be a good guy in, 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 in many ways. I just wanted to escape a life and have some peace. And I got led to where I am now. And it's been extremely rewarding to be able to be out there and, and encourage people and hopefully give them some advice and, and based upon my experience as to how they can stay out of trouble, not get into trouble, turn their lives around, because it really can happen in this life. And we just got to surround ourselves with good people. And, uh, and and try to do the best we possibly can, and, and we have a good shot of making things work out. Michael, hey, appreciate your time today. Listen, what great, great conversation. Uh, we'll definitely have to hook up again here in the near future, and if people want more information, it's michaelfranzizi.com. Thank you, Jeff, and anytime I'm available to you, buddy. Thank you. Okay, honestly. How great is that conversation? I am so glad that we were able to connect with Michael and he was able to share some of his experiences right here on Crush Performance. Getting back to our question. So, what do you think? Can a former mob boss help us excel in the world of sport? I found there to be some important and key takeaways here. Some telling us what we can or should be doing and some clearly telling us what we should not be doing, which is just as important. Michael now spends his time helping as many people as he possibly can and raising awareness through his books, movies, and presentations. Ah, it's just all so good. 
Now, turning to next week, I am back. I'll let you know how my adventure went coaching some of the top coaches in the Middle East. I'll share with you what I learned there, and we'll set the stage for the holiday season and our assault on 2024. I am personally laying out a performance plan for 2024, and I'd like to share it with you. 2024 is going to be a big, big year here at Crush Performance, and I'm going to have to be at the top of my game to bring it all together. So while I'm putting together my plan, I'd love it if you join me putting together your 2024 performance plan. This is where we practice what we preach. I'm going to use the principles I presented in my book, The Performance Plan, Strategies for Top Performance in Sport, Business, and Life. And we're going to go through the exact same process each and every one of our athletes goes through as we construct their long-term plans. Let's get set to attack 2024. I know I'm going to need this, and if you feel the same, let's do it together. I'll guide you through the process. No matter what your goals and objectives are, and no matter what you're chasing down in sport, in business, or in life in general, let's see what we can make happen. This will be our quest as we head into the holiday season and get ready to dominate 2024. I hope you'll join me. We'll need to be organized, we'll need to be focused, and we'll need to be ready to adjust and adapt at any moment. But maybe most of all, each and every one of us will need to be thinking like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. Thanks for tuning in to our three-part Looking Back to Learn series. I'm excited to get set for the new year. And I'm very serious about having you join me to construct our performance plans for 2024. If you're interested, DM me on one of the social media platforms, search out Crush Performance, or email me, info at jeffkershell.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.